Well, good morning. It's so good that uh, we've all made it here. Em, that was a great communion message. Thanks for bringing that. Uh, this morning, I get to do a little one-off message between series, which is good because um, free-for-all, just do whatever you want kind of thing. And um, I'm going to share a message called Mountain Climbers. And I got to share this message with uh, at a team night where we speak to the people who run ministries and stuff in the church. And it was about two months ago I got to share this message, uh, Mountain Climbers. And ever since then, I've actually wanted to share it with the church, but we've been in a series ever since. And so this morning I'm taking that opportunity to do that. And the teaching actually came out of, you know, those holy kind of proddings that you get from God where you just feel like, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know kind of teaching. Uh, and it was a teaching that God was speaking to Luke and myself, and we're still journeying on it. On it, And uh, it's really, if there was a tagline, it was, it's the pursuit for intimacy, for authentic intimacy with God. And in the, in the Bible, there are a lot of mountains, stacks of mountains. So uh, this morning, it's a metaphor. The mountains are a metaphor. We're not all <laughs> starting a mountain climbing ministry. Um, I'm sure Pam could come up with an acronym for mountain climbers. She loves her acronyms. But um, mountain climbers, I have, when I tried to think of, I don't really have any stories about mountains, but I had three quick memories of mountains. The first one, I remember I was in Tasmania with my dad and my sister, and we got out on top of this mountain, and I couldn't actually do up my parka really quickly. And so it was stuck, and I got out. I was just too excited. I wanted to be on the mountain. And I remember... The wind on that mountain filled up my parka and I thought I was going to float off the edge. I remember just being astounded by the power of the wind upon the mountain. Second one, I remember bushwalking up a mountain and I'm a fainter. And I remember that the air was just so unusual to me. It was so clean. It was thinner. And I just remember going, all right, I'm done and passing out on that mountain. That's my second memory of a mountain. And my last one that came to mind was more recent in, uh, in the Swiss Alps. And it was just phenomenal up there. And you really take in the majesty of God when you're standing in a place like that. But I remember there being a mix of wonder and sheer terror because the guy that drove us up there was hooking around these mountains. And there was no like there was no fence, it was just road and cliff. And when there was a car coming the other way, you either had to back up and find a spot or they'd have to back up and find a spot to let you pass. And I just remember praying fervently for about half an hour in the car ride, please Lord, get me there, please Lord, get me there. And once we got there, oh, I was fat. Um, sorry. Well, everyone would have noticed. Oh, sorry. Uh, and once we got there, there were these mountaintops and it was so peculiar to me because on one mountaintop, we were sunbaking and on the next mountaintop uh, next to us, it was covered in snow. It was just the most unusual uh, area that I've ever been. But there's so many Bible mountains in the Bible and one of the most significant one of these is uh, the focus of our study this morning and it's on Mount Sinai. 
Now, if you're unusual, if you're not familiar with Mount Sinai, it is the mountain in which the Israelites came to after they were freed from Egypt. Uh, it was in the wilderness, and they they came upon it, and some really significant things happened there. It's where the Ten Commandments were handed down, and God came and met the people, and uh, it's that that I want to take a look at this morning. Not so much the Ten Commandments, but what happened before and after and the response of the people and the reliance upon Moses to bring the word. And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'm going to read different passages from Exodus. Uh, If not, just look along on the screens. I stayed up all night typing them out word for word for you. No, I didn't. They just pop it in. (laughs) All right, Exodus 19. It says, God said to Moses, get ready. I'm about to do, I'm about to come to you in a thick cloud so that the people can listen. I'm going to come to you so the people can listen in and trust you completely when I speak with you. Again, Moses reported the, the, reported the people's answer to God. And then God said to Moses, go to the people for the next two days, go to the people for the next two days, get these people ready to meet the holy God. Have them scrub their clothes so that on the third day that they will be fully prepared because on the third day God will come down on Mount Sinai and make his presence known. He's going to make his presence known to everyone, to all the people. Post boundaries around for the people, telling them, warning, do not climb the mountain. Don't even touch its edge. Whoever touches the mountain dies a certain death. And no one is to touch that person. They're to be stoned. That's right, stoned or shot with an arrow, shot to death. Animal or man, whichever, put to death. A long blast from the horn will signal that it's safe to climb the mountain. So Moses heads back down the mountain, which isn't like a day trip. It's a big thing to go up and down this mountain. So Moses heads back down the mountain to the people and he's like, look alive, people. God is coming. Put on your best clothes. Clean yourselves. Don't, don't do anything stupid for three days. Can I trust you for three days, guys? This is all I'm asking. And, and so they're like getting ready to see and meet with God. And he's saying, I'm going to come so that the people can hear me speak and that they'll know my presence. What an incredible invitation. An invitation that is rarely seen in the Old Testament. Rarely seen. Goes on and in uh, verse 16 it says, Well, on the third day at daybreak, there were, there were loud claps of thunder, flashes of lightning, a thick cloud covering the mountain, an ear-piercing trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp shuddered in fear. Moses led the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at attention at the base of the mountain. Mount Sinai was all smoke because God had come down on it as fire. Smoke poured from it like a furnace. The whole mountain shuddered in huge spasms. The trumpet blast grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered in thunder. God descended to the peak of Mount Sinai and God called Moses up to the peak and Moses climbed. This is where God spoke the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments cop a fair bit of evangelical flack sometimes. But I just want to remind you that the Ten Commandments weren't evil. It was God's extension of grace to the people. 
It was a means of a way that an unholy people before a full atonement that Emily spoke about this morning could be made. That, that It was almost like a fig leaf to them. Like, I know that you are unholy and I'm holy, but if I give you this way, this is how we'll be able to communion, commune until the proper sacrifice. And so it was grace that, that God was extending upon that mountain And in chapter 20, verses 18, as we move on, it says, All the people experiencing the thunder and the lightning, the trumpet blast and the smoking mountain were afraid. They pulled back and stood at a distance. They said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't have God speak to us or we'll die. And Moses spoke to the people, don't be afraid. God has come to test you and instill a deep and reverent awe within you so that you won't sin. But the people kept their distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. I actually find this to be one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible. That God was extending an invitation to a people. And while Moses pushed in, they backed up. I wonder if they knew what they were missing. I wonder if they knew that amongst the smoke and the terror and the lightning and the earth-shuddering noises that were going on and the trumpet blasts, I wonder if they knew that this was the place that Moses was, was able to go to God, show me your glory. And God covered him and allowed him to see the back of him as he walked past. I wonder if they knew that they were missing out on hearing instructions on how to live. And when Moses was calling out, show me your glory, it wasn't show me your provision, show me your faithfulness, show me what you can do. What he was calling out was show me who you are and God showed him. I wonder if they would have stepped back and and pushed back at a distance if they knew what they were missing. And uh, hindsight's a wonderful thing. I feel like whenever I read the Old Testament, I usually am thinking, how stupid when I read things about the Israelites. But how often we do this? In verse 19, it says, you speak and we'll listen, but don't have God speak to us. If we're honest, we do this as well. We're okay for the preacher to bring a word where we wait for the next sermon, we wait for the next podcast, we wait for the next book, we wait for the next conference, we wait for the next something. You go up the mountain and tell us what he said. But if, and I'm not, before I go any further in the message, I'm not discounting the gifts that Jesus Christ gave to the, the church as the collective in Ephesians 4.11. It says that he gave... Um, He gave the gifts to the church which were varied. He himself appointed some as apostles, special messengers, representatives, some as prophets who speak a message from God to the people, some as evangelists who spread the good news of salvation, some as pastors and some as teachers to shepherd and guide and instruct. Please don't hear me wrong. I am so thankful for the gifts that Jesus gave to the church. But we are living in a time where we no longer need a Moses to go to the mountain and bring the word back, but we live in a covenant where we can go ourselves but so often we choose you go I'll wait and I'll listen to you in the words of renounced author and pastor Francis Chan he sums it up beautifully 
He says, we have a generation here who'd rather get a selfie with Moses than go up the mountain themselves. Hashtag conference. You know, I'm not discounting any of it. I mean, we have an invitation with a holy God every single day that we wake and we breathe. He's going, come, come, come. It's like, we, it's like if we're given, we say, hey, I found that favorite band. You know your favorite band that you say, I'll live for that band. I've got backstage passes. Oh, no, you go and you tell me what it was like. Tell me what the conversation was. That would be absurd. And yet we as Christians, I live for God. You're my everything. I trust in you always. But you go and you tell me what he said. I have a friend at the moment who uh, is traveling to base camp at Mount Everest. And, um, you know, I could watch every documentary that there is on Mount Everest. And I'm sure my dad probably has. He loves documentaries. But um, I could watch every doco. I could know its size. I could know its weather patterns. I could know the greats that climbed it before. I could know all the stories. I could know the gear that you need to take. I could even have the gear. <laughs> but I am never going to know the feeling, like, like my friend, I'm never going to know what it feels like for the air to hit my face when I come out of the tent in the morning. And I'm never going to know the pain in my fingers and toes because it's freezing. I'm not going to know the purity of the snow. I'm not going to know the emotion that's stirred when you catch, catch that first glimpse of the view. I'm not going to know that. Because that comes with being there. And knowledge is not enough to produce intimacy. Intimacy always produces knowledge. You always come away with a new revelation of who he is and how he loves you. But knowledge does not produce intimacy. In fact, I've found knowledge alone actually causes pride. It takes great pride in how much it's accumulated. But intimacy, that's that's a totally different thing. I'll never know, unless I climb to base camp, what it's like on that mountain at base camp. And the same with you. You will never know what God is like unless you make the journey to meet him yourself. And it's there that uh, you, you can say exactly what Moses did. Show me your glory. I know how faithful you are. Come on, show me your glory. Show me who you are. As I was preparing for this this week, God uh, led me to just write something. And I'm not going to read it all to you. That would just take forever. But I am going to read uh, a small passage of it because I felt God was really speaking it. And it says this. I've found that knowledge alone, independent of intimacy, causes pride. Takes great delight in how much of itself it has accumulated. But intimacy, authentic closeness, creates that great paradox. You leave with so much more than what you came with, yet you're aware of how little you have. You're hungry but full, thirsty but overflowing, and a wonder is evoked an insatiable hunger for the everlasting presence of the Creator. It's there we're reminded how good, how kind, how faithful is the Father who relentlessly extends this invitation for intimacy. Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. 
He's trying to cause wonder in you. He's trying to cause awe in you. That's what happens on the mountain. So what happened to the Israelites in the waiting for the word from Moses? Uh, It's a great story if you have time to read Exodus. Huge book. Um, But in Exodus 33, it says that the, it tells the people got tired of waiting for Moses. Does anyone get tired on waiting on God sometimes? (laughs) Anyway, uh, and they said, I don't know what's happened to this Moses. So they went to Aaron, the guy that that Moses left in charge, and he came up with a plan and he said, bring all your gold, your earrings, and I will fashion a calf out of them. Great job, Aaron. (laughs) And you know what the problem is here? When we back up from the presence of God, we create room to make substitutes. And I use the word substitute because the Israelites did not change teams in who they said their God was. They still said it was Yahweh. They still accredited all the miracles and the exodus coming out of Egypt. They still said, this is our God. But now he's a calf? Was it not just a few short weeks ago that when Moses was ascending the mountain that they're like, whoa, no, don't even let him speak to us. But in the distance, now they can create him by their own hands? It's in that stepping back from the presence of God, you lose perspective of his power. And this has enormous repercussions. It had enormous repercussions for them, but it has it for us as well. When we step back from the presence, where a few weeks ago they were very aware of the power of God, so much that they were terrified that they said, we can't even listen. A few short weeks and they back up and they create distance between God and them. And you find that they're putting faith in the works of their hands rather than the hand of the Father. Look what we made. It's God. It's God. And this is where religion starts and relationships end because you are putting faith in what you can do, not who he is. That gap is where religion starts. We just start doing substitutes of, I think this looks like God, right? Right? No, when did God become a calf? And when you're in the presence of God, look, they said, look, it's our God. You know what? They even planned a festival. They were stoked with themselves. They didn't even think anything bad at all. They were dancing and drinking and eating and they planned a festival around it. So much noise that Moses heard the people down below and thought there was war in the camp. That's how stoked they were. But when you're in the presence, you cannot say, look at what I've made. You go, I can't even look upon the all-creating God. You are too holy. And it's a really good indicator if you are championing the cause of what you made rather than what he's done, maybe you've made a little bit of too much space between you and him. There's no way in the world that that idol would have been built had they stayed in his presence. One, because they wouldn't have needed a substitute. But two, they would have heard the instruction of the Lord. It says in Micah 4.2, Come, let us go up the mountain of the Lord and the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. The mountain is not just for intimacy, it's for instruction as well. And that that calf wouldn't have been built because you know why? At the very time that they were saying to Aaron, we don't know what happened to this Moses. 
What should we do? He goes, I know, we'll build an idol. At the very time he was saying that, God was saying to Moses, tell the people they should have no idols. And at the very time that that Aaron goes, and furthermore, bring all your gold and your earrings and your silver. At that very time, God was saying to Moses, tell the people to bring their gold, their offering of the best, and I'll build a temple, a tabernacle that my presence would reside within you forever. So everywhere you go, I will be there with you. And what God had plans for to make his kingdom established on earth, that in the distance, in that space creating from his presence, they built to a false idol. And when you're in the presence, you don't only get intimacy, you get instruction. And sometimes we look at our decisions and go, God, why didn't you show up on that? It might be because we've used the things in our hands And what we've created with the wisdom of ourselves than rather going and asking, what did you have purpose for this? What do you have purpose for this, God? And you know what? What was meant to bring life actually brought 3,000 people killed at the base of the mountain because of that calf because they were retracted from intimacy and no longer heard his instruction. Psalm uh, 24.3 says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. That doesn't mean perfect. But one who does not trust in the idol or swear by a false god. That's, that's who ascends the mountain. I totally trust in you. So how do we get to the mountain? This is where Jesus comes in. You know, after the Israelites are totally stuffed up in the wilderness, the calf thing, um, God extended grace again, extended grace again. And uh, he allowed them to build that temple, the tabernacle in which he had first spoken to Moses about. And um, he allowed them to build that tabernacle and Uh, For the purpose of this, I don't really need to go into all the details of the tabernacle, but you do need to know that there were three parts of the tabernacle and also there were three parts in when the temple was built as well. So there was the tabernacle, which was not a permanent um, structure. It was a tent, but it it reflected what the temple was going to be. And both of them had an outer court, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. You You can guess which is top notch, right? Holy of Holies, that's the best. And, um, and the way that, um, that separated these parts was it was just an outer court for the outer court and there was a room for the holy place. But the Holy of Holies was separated by this veil. And this was not just any veil. The historian Josephus says that this veil was four inches thick. This is a curtain. This would keep the light out of morning. Luke keeps whinging about our curtains. Anyway, this was a curtain four inches thick, woven with scarlet and the best of the best, and it had gold woven into it. It was some curtain. And uh, the historian Josephia says that two horses tied either side running in opposite directions couldn't even tear it apart. That is the strength of this curtain. 
And uh, the object of the veil to get, was not to give access of a lovely access here, come on in. The, uh, the, the purpose of the curtain was to say, no more. You can't go any further than this. You can't enter the holy of holies. You're not worthy. You can't enter. And what was behind there was the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence. It held the Ten Commandments, which represented the grace and law that was extended to us. The mercy seat, where we find mercy. We couldn't enter there. You could not enter. Only the high priest could enter there on the Day of Atonement. And only if he had the sacrifice of an unblemished lamb that had been slaughtered in proper custom, in the proper custom and the blood needed to go before him. And even then it was pretty risky. Can't go any further. But on the cross, when Jesus spoke his last words, it is finished. All gospels record this. That the veil was split from top to bottom. It was over 30 feet high. Top to bottom. As if heaven had split open to earth. And no longer was it representing you can't go here. With Jesus' sacrifice, it opened up and said, come on in. Come on in. Some theologians believe that this was uh, representative of This represented God uh, partaking in the Jewish custom held by men who would rip their outer garments when they were in mourning. And they talk about how the veil was ripped to expose all of who God was in mourning for his son, but opening himself up to all of eternity to say, you're welcome now. You're welcome. Come, come, all who heavy laden, all who are burdened, all who are weary, all who are, come, you who are depressed, you who broken, you who's been shattered by life, come. And an eternal invitation was issued to you and me. You know, the Bible's pretty amazing how it's interwoven throughout uh, Old Testament and into New Testament. And those who study the Bible will uh, be familiar of the term of a shape or a shadow, and um, which really just means that something was, usually in the Old Testament, a type, it foreshadowed something that was going to happen in the New Testament. And Moses on Mount Sinai was one of these. He was a shadow, he was a type of what was to happen on the Mount of Transfiguration. If you're unfamiliar with that story, it's um, Jesus had a little prayer meeting with Moses and Elijah on this mountain and um, he glowed. (laughs) That was pretty cool. And... um, Look it up, it's in the Gospels. But it was a type. So Moses on Mount Sinai was a type of what was to come on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it makes for a great Bible study if you want to go through it. But what you see here is you see in Mount Sinai where the people say, you go to the mountain and we'll listen to you. And he came down, Moses came down and he shone. His face was radiant and he shone. But on the Mount of Transfiguration, the real thing that that they'd been waiting for, everything of Jesus shone. 
His clothes were like the sun, they said. And then instead of the people saying, you go, Moses, and we'll listen to you, a voice came from heaven, from the heavenly father and said, this is my son, listen to him. Essentially saying, church, you don't need a Moses. You've got Jesus now. Listen to Jesus. You can go up the mountain yourself. Listen to him. And as he came off the mountain, he shone. And Moses shone. And you know what happens when you go to the mountain? You shine. You shine. You don't have those sharp edges that just knowledge about God does. I know this, I know that. You have this beautiful essence that beckons people to come and know the everlasting love of the Father. People are drawn when you shine the love of God because you've been on the mountain yourself. And in Hebrews 12, it sums it up so well. Hebrews 12, 18 to 21 says this. Unlike your ancestors, you didn't come to Mount Sinai. And that's us, church. We didn't come to Mount Sinai. We had a little bit of thunder this morning, but nothing scary. All that volcanic blaze and earth-shaking rumble to hear God speak. The earth-splitting words and the soul-shaking message terrified them and they begged him to stop. When they heard the words, if an animal touches the mountain, it's as good as dead, they were afraid to move. Even Moses was terrified. No, that's not your experience at all and it's not ours. We've come to Mount Zion the city where the living God resides, the invisible Jerusalem that's populated by throngs of festive angels and Christian citizens. It's the city where God is judge and the judgments make us just. They don't make us fear, they make us just. And you've come to Jesus who presents us with a new covenant, a fresh charter from God. He's the mediator of this covenant. The murder of Jesus, unlike Abel, which was a homicide that cried out for vengeance, became a proclamation of grace. We are now under a proclamation of grace which allows us to enter that place where once said, no go. And if all the symbolism and Bible study this morning is confusing, let me put it this way. Where there used to be no access where there was a no access sign to the presence of God because of Jesus, there's a welcome home sign. And that's what you need to know. You're welcomed home in the presence of God. I pray that we would not be a church that has to put their hands out waiting for someone to bring us something. What is he like? Tell me what he's like. What did he say? Where's he going to be next? We are not that church and we don't need to be that people. I I spoke at at, a team night and I said, imagine if we all came full on Sunday. Not going, come on, preacher, give me something. And I know there's going to be weeks like that where we drag ourselves in and like, you better give me something or I'm done. (laughs) But imagine if we all came full this morning. Full of his presence but knowing how much we needed it. Thirsty, but knowing that we're overflowing, the anointings is going everywhere. Would it change your worship? 
Would it change the conversations with people that you haven't really connected with? It would, because you know why? You shine. You shine. I just want to read that one thing again. Has the band come? I found that knowledge alone, independent of intimacy, causes pride. Let's not be that people that know so much about God and lord it over people. I know this. Who cares? Do you know him? But intimacy, authentic closeness, creates the great paradox. You leave with so much more than what you came with, yet aware of how little you had. Hungry but full, thirsty but overflowing, a wonder is evoked and an insatiable hunger for the everlasting presence of the Creator. And it's there we are reminded how good, how kind, how faithful is the Father who relentlessly extends this invitation for intimacy. I pray you say yes. I pray you accept and allow him to do a wonderful, wonderful work within you and we would shine the love of Jesus. Amen.